Well, if you have your Bible, turn with me to James, the first chapter, beginning in verse 2. I want to talk to you today about a mature faith. James, chapter 1, beginning in verse 2. Now, if somebody's sitting beside you and they don't have a Bible, share with them. We want everybody to see the text today because it's we're going to kind of go through it verse by verse, so I want you to... Have it before you if you can. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is the double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field... He will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass, the flowers fall, and beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. Soren Kierkegaard was a Danish philosopher of the 19th century. His writings are still very, very powerful for today. Many of his writings are related to the subject of faith and what really faith is all about. Uh, That was a real contribution that uh, James made to the scripture. Nobody else deals with it as much as he does. Kierkegaard believed that in the search of a mature faith, every person has to go through three different stages. The first stage he called the feeling stage. This is when an individual seeks fulfillment in their feelings. These are the kind of people who are always feeling their feelings, to feel how their feelings are feeling. (laughs) And their feelings are not feeling as well as they did the last time they felt their feelings, then they do not feel very well. Some people feel good when they salute the flag. Some people feel good when they help out some group, like Boy Scouts or some group like that. Some people feel good when they put somebody down. They just, it just makes them feel great uh, to be able to do that. A lot of people have felt good because of me, because they uh, put me down with great regularity. Mary Lou Stiles was a member here years ago. She came up to me uh, one Sunday and showed me this uh, obituary in the obituary column, and I thought it was one of the funniest things I've ever read in my life. I want to share it with you this morning. The gist of the obituary was this. Mrs. Jones died. She was survived by her daughter Mary, who loved and served her for years. Her son, John, who betrayed and deserted her. 
her son Mark, who broke her heart. Now, I figure that Mary wrote this. (laughs) She wrote the obituary and felt really good uh, after she had done it. She thought uh, that that was putting everything in order. For many Christians, their faith is nothing more than a lump in their throat or a tingling sensation in their spine. Kierkegaard believed that a Christian would eventually come to a time when they were bored with all that feelings can offer. The Christian would become aware that there is more to the Christian life than just feelings and emotions. At that point, the Christian would be ready to move to the second stage of faith. The second stage, Kierkegaard called the ethical stage. In this stage, a Christian seeks fulfillment through good works. He seeks to gain a sense of well-being in service to others, and he serves others all the time. He gets real busy doing, underline doing, doing things for the Lord and for others. Do you remember the story of the Good Samaritan? I'm sure you do. The priest and the Levite were walking down the road. They were going to the next meeting. They had a lot of meetings, a lot of religious meetings. Uh, They had a lot of people they had to meet and they had to talk to and they had to do this with and that with. And uh, they were very, very busy. Well, as they were walking down the road, lo and behold, there was a guy over here in the ditch. And he had been beaten to the point of ending his life. I mean, he was bloody and bleeding, and he was just about to die. And these two uh, hierarchical people in the religious uh, doings of that day, they walked right by because they had to be at the next meeting. And uh, they just went right on by. They were real busy in religious things but they demonstrated no faith. The second stage also leads eventually to disillusionment because a person will eventually realize that no matter how hard he tries, he can never do enough. At this point, he moves to the third stage of faith. The third stage is what Kierkegaard calls the mature faith stage. In this stage, the Christian makes a very strong commitment to the Lord. He does it in front of everybody, makes a real strong commitment to the Lord. They basically say, no matter how I feel, no matter what I'm able to do, I'm burning my bridges behind me and I'm putting my life into the hands of my Lord Jesus. Carl Lowe's was a converted Jew in a Nazi German prison. He understood this third stage of faith. He wrote this statement of faith on the wall of his cell shortly before he died. I believe in the sun when it's not shining. I believe in love when I cannot feel it. And I believe in my Lord Jesus, even when he is silent. This is what mature faith really is. It does not mean that you have to feel a certain way. 
it does not mean that you have to do certain things each day. Mature faith involves a strong commitment to our Lord when we put ourselves totally into his hands. In verses 2 through 4, James says that a mature faith will enable you to find joy even through trials, the trials that might come to your life. When we have problems or setbacks or unexpected difficulties in life, our tendency is to cry out and say, well, why me, Lord? Look at all these other people in the mall. What about them? Why me? Why me? I go to church every once in a while. I have a Bible in the living room. Why me? James says the way of faith is to rejoice when trouble comes. We can rejoice when trials come because they give us a chance to reveal the genuineness of our faith. James says that through our trials, our faith is tested. Anyone can have faith when everything's going great. You know, if everything's going great, you don't uh, think about uh, demonstrating your faith. You don't think about this. You don't think about that. You just enjoy the moment. Enjoy the time. When trouble comes and the lights go out, and maybe it gets hot or it gets cold, that's when you know what kind of faith you really have. In addition, we can rejoice in our trials because the difficulties provide an arena, an arena for the growth of our faith. Do you want your faith to really grow? Then deal with some difficult things. And as you work through it, and as you help others through it, your faith grows and develops and matures. In verses 3 and 4, James says, facing troubles helps us to have patience. If there is one thing that many Americans need today, it's patience. When you go to the grocery store and you fill your a buggy or whatever, roller or whatever you call it, when you fill that thing up and you take it to the line and you start going through the line, sometimes you're like the fifth one back, and, of course, it goes slowly. Well, when you're in this line, have you ever had the person behind you with their little buggy kind of keep running it into you? (laughs) Have you ever had that? I have. I wanted to slap them. (laughs) They kept running their buggy into me. I thought, cool it, cool it for crying out loud. I can't run over all these people in front of me. What's the matter with you? I didn't do any of those things. Another example is road rage. I am so tired of Corvettes and Jaguars cutting me off. And running people, really, out of their lane, if there had been another car over there, it had been a big wreck. You know, these little cars that dot in, dot out, sometimes it's a pickup truck, and they're floorboarding it, and they're, you know, making you move, basically. They're trying to get ahead so they can get there seven seconds sooner. <laughs> Makes a lot of sense to have road rage, I'll tell you. 
Well, it seems like half of our populace has no patience whatsoever. In verses 5 and 6, James says that a mature faith will cause you to seek wisdom through prayer. Through prayer. In one California high school, there was a sign on the wall that said, In case of an earthquake, the ruling against school prayer will be temporarily suspended. (laughs) Notice that James is not telling us just to pray. He is telling us what to pray for. He's telling us to pray for wisdom. You know, that's what we all need. We need wisdom. We need to be able to figure out a situation that we're in where we can help the other person to be closer to Jesus. We need to have wisdom so that as we become active in our church, we try and move the church in the right direction. We need to pray for wisdom so that we can make an account of our finances, our things that we have, so that it will be an honor to the Lord. James says, pray for wisdom. When we deal with the trails of life that lead us to the trials of life, we need God's wisdom. We get it by praying for it. You say, well, how do I get it? Well, you pray for it. That's what James says. Begin to pray regularly for wisdom, and God will give it to you. He wants to answer that prayer for you. What do you pray for? Do you pray to win the lottery? Do you pray that all your stocks will go up? I do. (laughs) Do you pray for success? or health, or happiness, and that's about it. James says you ought to pray for wisdom. Wisdom. When you have wisdom, whether success or failure comes in your life, you will know how to handle it if you have this wisdom that you have prayed for. And you'll know how to glorify God through it. Through it. In verses 9 through 11, James points out that in all circumstances of life, a mature faith will enable us to have contentment. He says that both poverty and prosperity can be problematic for the normal Christian. The problems of poverty are obvious. We all know what they are. Uh, Without sufficient money, many needs are not met, and many desires are not fulfilled. If you're poor and your air conditioner goes out, you're up the creek because you can't pay to have it fixed right away. You have to do it on some kind of a plan. If it becomes Easter or Christmas or birthdays and you can't give gifts to your children or grandchildren, It's really a sad thing, and you, of course, 
uh, feel that sadness? What if your medicine has gone up so much that you can't pay for it? So you have to quit taking it. You know, if you think you're doing real, real well and you're getting older and either you or your wife all of a sudden starts uh, having prescriptions for this stuff that costs a fortune, you know, we kind of wonder, what are we going to do? Well, once again, James says, pray for wisdom as to what to do. Poverty can result in envy and bitterness. Now, great Christians that are poor, they take that situation in their life and use it as an illustration to others so that they can be drawn closer to our Savior. The problems of prosperity also need to be recognized. The abundance of money can lead to a false sense of security. In my very first full-time church right outside of Atlanta, it was the man in the church that owned a filling station and another store right beside it, kind of a 7-Eleven type thing. And evidently, he was making a lot of money and was very wealthy. He lived in a mansion and drove uh, Cadillacs and things, and he was always uh, doing something that was very expensive. And he let everybody know about it. You know, he was proud of it. Well, uh, his wife got sick, and she had to have somebody stay with her all the time, 24 hours a day. And one day, he came to my office, and he said, uh, Pastor, you're going to have to pray for me. And I said, why is that? And he said, well, and he told me all about what all was wrong with his wife. He said, uh, I've paid for somebody to be there all the time, and it's very expensive, and her medicines are very expensive, and I'm way down in money. He said, I don't have hardly any money left, and my wife might live for 10 more years. I want you to pray for me. Well... We don't want to put all of our ideas uh, forward that say we're secure when we have a lot of money, because we're not. Some people, when they have a lot of money, they are a person that moves away from God, saying as they go, you know, I've kind of got everything in my hand. I've got everything going the right way. I've got everything working for me. And it drives you away from God. There is a section of homes in Dallas that I'm very familiar with. Everybody in there is a zillionaire. And uh, Mary Kay lived there. Mary Kay was a friend of mine. And uh, she went to our church, and we got to be close uh, friends. And uh, she told me one day, she said, uh, Ron, she said, I can't get any of my neighbors to come to church. And I said, why is that? And she says, because they're so dad blamed rich. That's why. <laughs> and I said, well, they're going to need the Lord one day. She said, I know it. She says, but I can't get them to come. They say they got a lot of money. They got everything under control. They don't need God. They don't need anything. 
They've got everything they want. Well, both poverty and prosperity can provide trials for the Christian. You can have trials on either end of that spectrum. Someone has said there are three categories of people in our world. There are the haves and the have-nots and the have-not paid for what they have. (laughs) James says that with a mature faith, no matter what the situation is, no matter what situation you're in, you can find peace and power and purpose in your life, in that situation, that will give your witness to others that are around you. No matter how old you are, a mature faith is a blessing. I believe there are some, very, very few, some teenagers that have a mature faith. I've talked to some of them. And they've really kind of got it figured out. And they believe it. And they're trying to be a testimony for the Lord Jesus. There was a middle-aged man standing outside the window at the art gallery. There was a big painting of the crucifixion in the window. It was on exhibition. It's really beautiful. And this middle-aged man was standing there looking at it. It was just it was just so good, you know, it was just almost unbelievable. As he was gazing through the window, he became conscious of a little boy that was standing very close uh, beside him, looking up at the same picture. Noticing the boy was dressed poorly, the man made an attempt to be friendly. He said to the little boy, do you know whose picture it is here in this uh, picture? The little boy said, yes, I do. That's our Savior. And the little boy uh, thought, you know, that man's a lot older than I am. He should have known who that was (laughs) in that picture. He thought, you know, I think I need to give him some added information. And so the little boy said, thems are the, the Roman soldiers over there. And that woman crying over there, that's his mother. The boy waited silently for a while and then pushed his hands deeper into his pockets. With a reverent uh, voice, he added, Mister, they killed our Savior. Yes, sir, they did. They killed our Savior. And the man at the window, who was a Christian, was so proud of this little boy and all the things that he knew and said. The man asked the boy, where did you learn all of this? And the little boy said, I learned it in Sunday school. He said, my church has a great Sunday school, and I go every week, and I learn everything I know in Sunday school. Well, thank you, the man said. As he turned and walked away, he was so proud of that little boy. He had walked about a block when he heard the little boy running toward him behind him. And so he stopped walking and turned around. And the little boy was calling out, Mister! Hey, Mister! And the man, when he got up there right in front of him, the man said, Yes? 
The boy's hands were raised dramatically, as he said. Before you got away, I wanted to tell you that our Savior rose again. That's important. (laughs) And the man said, it sure is. The man uh, had a smile on his face and a smile on his heart. It's very important, the man said. Let me ask you this morning, do you have a faith that can deal with the trials of life And do you have a faith that can understand the joy of the resurrection? Whichever it might be, or both and, it's a wonderful thing to have that kind of faith. This morning, if there's anyone in the house that, for whatever reason, has never trusted and believed in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, We want to ask you to do that today on Mother's Day. Maybe you're here with your mother and she's been praying for you for years. And maybe you need to give your heart to Jesus today. You know, I've had that happen a lot of times through the years. If you're here this morning and you haven't joined a church, you don't have a church family, you don't have people that are praying for you every day because you haven't placed yourself in a place where Christian relationships can be formed, and you can grow in your faith. If you'd like to make a public proclamation of your faith, or if you'd like to join his church here today, I pray that you'd do it, that you wouldn't hold back, that you just slip out and come forward and take a stand for our living Savior. I'm going to stand right down here at the front and wait on you to come. Let's stand together as we sing.